And as we have just sung, we will be looking at the Beatitudes this morning, however, not all of them. And so our verses are Matthew 5, verses 1 to 5. Again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And continuing on through the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is now to open your word and to be instructed from it. We pray, dear Lord, that you would teach us what it means this morning and in subsequent mornings as we gather together in the name of Christ, what it means, O Lord, to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And what it means, O Lord, to be called blessed. Thank you, Father, because you have indeed poured out blessings upon your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we saw last week, the first four chapters of Matthew, Matthew is building up a case for who Jesus is. And then in those last few verses of Matthew chapter 4, He says that Jesus began to preach and he began to teach. He went into synagogues and he began to heal. And he had great crowds of people following him. And so Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are the first written record of Jesus' teaching and preaching in his gospel. It's the first time that we actually hear the full content or a greater content of Jesus' message, of what he is proclaiming. And those first four chapters of Matthew's are an introduction to who Jesus is. If you're going to listen to Jesus' teaching, you have got to know who he is. You've got to be able to trust him. This is why when we have guest preachers who come to mid-cities and preach, there's some sort of introduction of this person, of this man. You need to know who he is. You need to know a little bit about his background. You need to know that when he opens God's word, when he proclaims it, when he preaches, that you can trust what he's got to say. And this is what Matthew has done. He he is saying, here is why you can trust what Jesus teaches and preaches in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. 
And in fact, all of those sections of Jesus' preaching, which continue throughout Matthew's Gospel. Well, in these first four chapters, what has Matthew said about who Jesus is and why he came? What has he said? Why should we listen to him? Well, let's do a quick review. In chapter 1, by tracing his genealogy, Matthew shows that Jesus is the long-awaited king from the line of David. And he also tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh. He calls him Emmanuel, God with us. In chapter 2, he receives honor that is due only to a king when these wise men, the Magi, come to him from afar. And they pay homage to him. But then we see Matthew presents Jesus. He shows that Jesus uh, is, through his flight to Egypt and his return to Nazareth, he is true Israel. He has come to finish what Israel failed to do in the wilderness. In chapter 3, we see Jesus now as a grown man. He's no longer a child. And as a man, he went into the wilderness again. He went to be baptized by John. And he received John's baptism of repentance, not because he he had sins himself to repent of, but because he was standing as our substitute. He was identifying with us in his baptism. And in a sense, our sins were being imputed to him. When John laid his hands on Jesus to baptize him, Jesus became our representative. Matthew 3 also shows that not only is Jesus the king, not only is he true Israel, not only is our substitute, our representative, but he is God's beloved son. And so we have those words, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Well, chapter 4 shows that Jesus fasted for 40 days. And representing his people, he endured great temptation by Satan in the wilderness. And like us, he was tempted in every single way. But unlike us, he remained without sin. And at 30 years of age, he began his public ministry and called his first disciples. And why did he do all of this? Why did he bother to do all of this? Well, Matthew gives us the answer early on in his gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where he quotes the angel who says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came as a baby lying in that manger. He came to save his people from their sins. And Matthew wants you to know that right up front. And with this introduction in mind, his readers now knowing who Jesus is. In chapter 5, Matthew invites us to listen to the teaching and the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you know who he is. Now you can trust him. Because he is all things that you have failed to be. And more than that, he is your savior. If you believe what he says. And so I would ask you, I would invite you to think about this as we work our way through these five verses. Jesus teaches what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And we are called to believe because of who he is and what he has done for us. Jesus teaches what it means in these chapters and in these verses. He teaches what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And we are called to believe because of who he is and what he has done for us. Now, believe it or not, I've managed to divide these four brief verses, in, five brief verses into four sections. Section one is Jesus begins to teach, verses one to two. Section two, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's verse 3. 
Section 3, blessed are those who mourn, which is verse 4. And finally, blessed are the meek, verse 5. Jesus begins to teach, verses 1 to 2, blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4. Blessed are the meek, verse 5. So let's first look at these two verses, these first two verses. Jesus begins to teach. Matthew chapter 4, verse 25 says that great crowds were following Jesus. They were following him all over this region around Galilee. And it's safe to say that they were probably largely attracted because of the healings, these miraculous works that he was doing among the people. He was healing the sick. He was driving out demons. He was doing things that they had never seen before. But his teaching was likely drawing them as well. And chapter 5, verse 1 says that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came and gathered around him. We learn from chapter 7, verse 28, that the crowds followed him too. These crowds, which were constantly a part of Jesus' ministry, these crowds, which on some occasions Jesus had to escape, they followed him up the mountain. And they too sat and listened to his teaching. And so you can imagine this group of people, his disciples there in front of him, and farther down or farther out, the group of the crowds. They're all there. They're there to hear what Jesus has to say. And instead of feeding them with bread and with fish, as he did with the 5,000, he, he understands, as he says to Satan in chapter 4, that they cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, as verse 2 says, Jesus opened his mouth and he taught them. You see, Jesus here is feeding them the bread of life. First, he feeds them the bread of life. Later, he will feed them bread that will sustain them physically. And these two verses mark what is the beginning, what is known, the beginning of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon runs from the beginning of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7. And as you well know, this sermon contains some of the most memorable passages in all of Scripture. This sermon contains the Beatitudes, part of which we'll be looking at this morning. It contains the Lord's Prayer. It has teaching on anger, on lust, on divorce, on mourning. It has teaching on love for enemies, fasting, and anxiety. In Jesus' roughly 2,400-word sermon, he covers a, a wide variety of subjects. He's all over the place. But if we had to, to discern an overarching theme for this sermon, what would it be? If you had to summarize it, what would you say? Well, one possibility may be that Jesus is teaching us how to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In this sermon, he's teaching us how to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now you can see that Jesus begins this sermon in chapter 5, verse 3, and ends it in chapter 7, uh, verse 21, talking about the kingdom of heaven. And throughout this sermon, he mentions the kingdom six other times. This is a very important theme for him. It's a very important theme throughout the entire gospel of Matthew, but especially in this sermon. And you remember before Jesus begins teaching, both he and John the Baptist have called on people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And because of this, Jesus is said to have gone around the region of Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. 
Jesus in his sermon is saying to his disciples gathered before him and to the crowds, this is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is how you live. This is who you are as citizens. Now, of course, not everyone in his audience is going to follow him. Not everyone is going to believe the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' words in the sermon had tremendous importance. And they continue to be important for believers today, but not everyone will hear them. Not everyone will heed them. And just as today, even then, in Jesus' time, many people who followed him initially left him. They deserted him. Well, at the very beginning of Jesus' sermon, what does he do? At the very beginning, his opening words, what does he do? He pronounces a series of blessings, or beatitudes from the Latin for blessing, on the citizens of the kingdom. Now, I can remember when I was a child, when I would go through these, I, I can remember thinking that Jesus was talking about eight different types of people, eight different groups of people. He was talking about the poor in spirit, or he was talking about the meek, or he was talking about those who mourn, or those who are peacemakers. Eight different separate groups of people. But this was a mistake in my thinking. Jesus is not talking about eight different types of people in the Beatitudes. He's talking about eight different characteristics of one type of person. And that person is the citizen of the kingdom. In other words, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he is talking about you. You will have all of these characteristics. You will be poor in spirit. You will be mournful. You will be meek. You will be merciful. You will be pure in heart. You will be peacemakers. You are, you will be all of these things because you, of who you are in Jesus Christ. And because you are in Christ Jesus, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. An entire sermon can be devoted to each one of these Beatitudes. But there's a danger in that. There's a danger in that you will see these as, as eight different types of people. They'll become two separate Doing one sermon on each might result in severing each beatitude from the other. But there's also a danger in trying to preach through the entire list of beatitudes in one sermon. And that is that we can only do a surface job of of teaching on this. And so we'll spend some time over the next several weeks looking at the beatitudes. We'll go two to three at a time. We'll go through them. And all the while as we work through this, my, my goal is to remind you that each of these Beatitudes, each of these blessings applies to each of you who name the name of Christ Jesus. Well, let's first look then at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount is verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first thing that should strike you about this beatitude is a contrast here. There's a contrast between blessed and poor. Poor in spirit. And in fact, as you look at the next two beatitudes, there's the same sort of contrast. We do not normally put blessed and poor in the same sentence, do we? In our culture, blessing is often uh, thought of as in in terms of material wealth. And that is indeed a blessing. But rarely do we think of blessed and poor in the same sentence. 
But if we focus on material blessing, if we focus on material poverty, we're missing the point here. Because Jesus said that the poor in spirit are blessed. Now you'll recognize if you look at Luke chapter 6, which contains a small uh, section of the Beatitudes, that there's a difference there. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And commentators are generally agreed on this, that Matthew captures the true spirit of what Jesus was saying there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not speaking exclusively only about the poor, the the, the materially poor. But what is meant by blessed? These words are used of a person who is especially favored of God. A person who is blessed has, has received the favor of God. God looks down upon that person. In love. We can easily understand this when we think of, those of you who are parents, you think of your children, think of the love that you have for your children. You look at your children. You look at them with favor, a special favor that you don't have for other children, no matter how much you care for other children. The Beatitudes describe a person who is looked upon with that kind of particular love that the Heavenly Father has for His own children. He looks down upon you. And he loves you. You're his child. And his love for you results in a gracious reward, which is poured out upon you. Well, this first beatitude speaks of the blessedness of the poor in spirit. And in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, God says, By this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God will look at that person, humble and contrite, trembling when God speaks. And so you see that a person who is poor in spirit is not arrogant or conceited. They're not haughty. They're humble. They know that because they are are sinful, they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing. They're impoverished. They have nothing to lay claim to as they stand before God. Now, most of us struggle with pride. It is almost inherent in the human sinful condition. But when we see our sin for what it is, we are humbled. One has only to look at David, who in Psalm 51 pours out his heart to the Lord after he's been made aware of his sin with Bathsheba. David says in verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God looks upon this child, this person, with favor, with love. And after the prophet Nathan awakened David to his sin, David was blind to his sin. He was willful in his sin. David, who was materially wealthy, became poor in spirit. He was broken. And when his sin was exposed, David was not defiant. He confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. So to be poor in spirit is to be convinced of your sin before God. You are broken. You know that you are utterly helpless. You are destitute. You are without hope. Only the Lord can save you. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. But if you are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You are a kingdom of the you're a citizen of the kingdom right now. Your citizenship is not in this world, it is in, it is in heaven. 
And the blessing is given to you the moment that you repent of your sins. The moment you believe in Christ Jesus, you become a citizen. Immediately, you receive this blessing. Let's look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says here, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Most of us know what it's like to lose a loved one. Some of you have lost parents, some children, some brothers or sisters, some grandparents. And it's a painful event in your life to lose someone you love. But in this context, Jesus is speaking of a different kind of mourning. He has just been speaking of those who are poor in spirit, those who are broken and humbled because of their sin. Those who are poor in spirit will mourn because of their sin. They will have grief, sorrow, sadness. They will have remorse for their sin. Now most in our society are not mournful for their sin. If anything, most people celebrate their sinfulness. They rejoice in it. They flaunt it. There's no shame any longer. Instead of celebrations, there should be sackcloth and ashes. We should humbly stand before the Lord and beg for His forgiveness. But our mournfulness is not only because of our own individual sin, it's because of the the collective sin of our societies, because of the, the general sinfulness of mankind. We mourn because this world which was created by God, which was declared by Him to be good, has fallen into a state of sin and misery. We mourn. We mourn because the true weight of sin in the world. And we mourn because Jesus had to bear that weight upon himself on the cross. Jesus himself mourned because of the sin of others. You remember what he said, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus mourned the sin of this city. And Jesus himself felt the true weight of sin when he took it upon himself on the cross. He bore it on his back. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, he said to his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Jesus mourned, not because of his own sin, but because of the sin of the world. Because of the sin that he would bear for his people on the cross. Jesus was crushed for your iniquities and for my iniquities by his Father who punished him because of our sins. He was crushed. But there is a sense in which we can say that he was crushed by the weight of our sins. Yes, he was crushed by his Father in punishment for our sins, but he was also crushed by the weight of our sins themselves. You see, God laid your iniquities and my iniquities on him. And this collective weight of our sins crushed him on the cross as he suffered the penalty that you and I deserved. This thought alone should make us mournful. How can a believer in Christ Jesus, one who professes faith in Christ Jesus, add another weight to the crushing weight that Jesus bore on the cross? How could we do this? This should fill us with sorrow. 
We should mourn and lament all the sin that we witness in this world, especially the sins of those who name the name of Jesus. But what blessing does Jesus pronounce on those who mourn? He says they shall be comforted. Now notice that in the first beatitude, the blessing is in the present, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This beatitude, in this beatitude, the blessing is in the future, for they shall be comforted. Your life as a believer is a mournful existence. You will not reach perfection in this life, and neither will the world. But Jesus promises that you will be comforted. There will come a time when you will stand before Jesus, and he will wipe your tears away. And you will mourn no longer. The blessing is the promise of future comfort. Yet this knowledge that you will be comforted in the future brings you hope right now. You have it right now. You have that hope. And so when we're faced with this strange mixture of hopefulness, excuse me, of mournfulness and hopefulness in our lives as Christians. Now many of you may know of a pastor in Philadelphia named Paul Tripp. And he has said that Christians should be the saddest people on the face of the earth. But he's also said that they should be the most celebratory on the face of the earth. We should be, we should be overwhelmed with sadness for our sin. And for the sin that we see in the world. But we should also be exuberant in our celebration of God's grace. Which is poured out on sinners like you and me. Grace that is unmerited, undeserved. This should cause us to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Well finally let's look at verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus gives the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now Jesus almost certainly had in mind Psalm 37, 11, which says, But the meek shall inherit the land, and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now what does Jesus mean by meek here? Sometimes this word is mistaken for weakness. Jesus is not talking about the weak Jesus uses this word again in Matthew's gospel. He uses it again in, in, uh, for, the, for the very next time in Matthew 11, verse 29, where he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will, rest, excuse me, you will find rest for your souls. The word translated gentle in 11, verse 29, is the same word which is translated here as meek. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the gentle. Now, poor in spirit and meek are very similar ideas. They're very close in their meaning. Both convey the sense of humility. But being poor in spirit is humility because of brokenness, because of our brokenness in our sin. Being meek is humility because of our creatureliness. In other words, we are meek because we are now standing before God as our Creator. We are creatures. He alone is God. But when we forget that, when we forget that we are creatures, we begin to elevate ourselves to Godhood. We fail to see the distinction between creator and creature. Meekness is the recognition that I am no greater than you. Because I, like you, are, we are creatures. We are creatures who indeed have been made in the image of God, but we are creatures. Now the blessing is that the meek shall inherit the earth. 
And to understand what this means, we've got to go back to the Old Testament. As I've qu- I quoted earlier from, uh, from Psalm 37, verse 11. If you've spent much time reading through the Old Testament, and I hope you have, and I hope you will, you'll realize that very little is said in the Old Testament about the afterlife. Very little. There's very little talk of heaven. There's very little talk of what happens when one dies. In the New Testament, the ultimate goal is to be in heaven with Jesus. But in the Old Testament, the ultimate goal was to make it to the promised land. Now this is an interesting distinction, an interesting difference. We have to understand what it means, what the promised land means. The promised land was, or excuse me, the promise of the land was originally given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And from that point on, the goal of Abraham, the goal of all of his people was to get to this land that God had promised them. The land was the focus of God's people, both before they had taken possession of it and after, when they were driven by God into exile. This was the focus. But the promise of the land carried with it a spiritual significance. This is where dispensationalists tend to get it wrong. They think that for the Jewish person, the land is all they will receive. The land has always had a spiritual component to it. It was, in a sense, a return to paradise. When God promised that Abraham's people would go to the promised land, he was, in a sense, promising them that they would return to Eden. They would return to that place where God walked among his people. Eden was the place where heaven and earth were merged together. God was there. He was with Adam. And the promised land has a similar purpose. It was, it was the place where God's temple, the footprint of heaven and earth, was to be built. It was the place where God would once again, in a sense, walk with his people. He would meet them. He would meet with them in the temple. And so the promised land has always had a significance, a spiritual significance, beyond the land itself. But it has always been marred by sin. And so God's people only temporarily inhabited the promised land. They couldn't retain it. They couldn't stay there. They were driven out because of their rebellion, because of their sin. They were sent into exile. And they never again fully returned to the land. So what happens when Jesus comes? When Jesus came, his birth marked a return of sorts to Eden. God was, once again, walking among us. And yet, still, the stain of sin remains. God was walking among us. This is why the opening verses of John's Gospel are so intentionally similar to the opening verses of Genesis. John wants you to see that Eden is being restored in the coming of Jesus Christ. Everywhere Jesus plants his feet, the kingdom of God is extended. And so Jesus is not talking of the meek inheriting the physical earth as we know it today. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they have an inheritance in that kingdom, in the heavenly kingdom. This is why Jesus is called Emmanuel. This is why Matthew points out that Jesus is called Emmanuel. He is God with us. And there is a renewal, in a sense, of Eden. Well, it is the kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth 
where heavenly Jerusalem will descend. As you read about in Revelation, it comes down from the heavens, descends to the earth. This is what Jesus is talking about here. This is the kingdom the meek shall inherit. And once again, heaven and earth will be completely merged. Jesus will be there. God will be there. There will be no need of sunlight. God will provide light. The heavenly city will be pure as gold, but clear as glass. Because God is there with us. There will be no sin. There will be no tears. There will be no more pain. God will once again walk with his people. But the future inheritance that is promised to the meek will be an earth that is without sin. It will be like Eden before the fall. But with one major difference. There will never be again the possibility of sin entering the new heavens and the new earth. And all you must do to receive this inheritance, indeed all you must do to receive all of these promises of blessing that Jesus pronounces in the Beatitudes is to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's all you must do. And God in His, in his grace and His love for you will pour out His blessings upon you. You will have the kingdom of God. You will be comforted in your mourning. And you will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. All this is yours if you believe. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We thank you, O Lord, that though we do not understand your promises completely, we can trust that they are true and that you will indeed bless us with them. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings we have already received. And we pray, O Lord, that you would give us strength to continue the fight, to continue our walk with you in this, world, in this world and on this earth, to continue our struggle with sin so that we may indeed, one day in the future, see you face to face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.